0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. Twenty percent of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well With All.
1: Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
2: I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, how will a price increase in the anti-overdose drug Narcan affect Massachusetts municipalities? The Boston City Council wants more trees around town. And moving a monument that commemorates a UFO sighting? All that and more on this week's Local News Roundtable. Later in the show, the intersection of art and technology. You will see paintings, you'll see sculptures, you'll see art made in a variety of analog mediums. Everything has been touched by the Internet. A new exhibit at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston explores how the Internet has changed the way we view and make art. But first, joining me in the studio, Lauren Dazinski, reporter for Politico Massachusetts and editor of Politico's Massachusetts Playbook. Welcome back, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Sue O'Connell, host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell, and the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hi, Sue. Hey, Kelly. And Seth Daniel, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and the Revere Journal. Hello again, Seth. Hello, Callie. So I want to start with you, uh, Lauren, about this price increase for Narcan because I didn't realize that the state subsidy ran out. Subsidy ran out, which means now that the bulk prices that municipalities were paying to make sure they had enough of this anti-overdose drug um, now cost way more. Which it was already something that was being inserted in, in budgets. This, this is more difficult.
1: Yeah, so so as awareness of the opioid epidemic has grown and cities and towns have tried to take preemptive measures to stop overdoses um, and, you know, to really fight this epidemic, the cost of the overdose drug known as Narcan, which essentially stops an overdose in its tracks, has absolutely jumped. This is at the same time as a state-created subsidy intended to help cities and towns you know mitigate the cost of this drug ran out so the subsidy was started in 2015 I believe it ran out in September of 2017. In October of 2018, the cost of the drug itself jumped from $40 for a two-pack to $71. And then you also had the increase of the cost of the syringes from $20 to $30. And this is the subsidized cost. This is the wholesale bulk cost of the drug itself. If you were to actually buy uh, just a two-pack of Narcan just for regular value, it'd be $125. So it represents a really, really significant expenditure for cities in towns that already are completely strapped for cash. And now, as they're attempting to, you know, fight this epidemic, it's becoming even more difficult.
2: You mean it went up in 2017, then? We're in 2018. Correct. correct. Yes, yes. Sorry.
1: Yes. So, Seth,
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, Massachusetts is kind of the leaders in this. Let's face it. You know, the the police chief in Marlboro, that's where it started here. And now we have programs all through the state even trying to get citizens Mm -hmm. to, if they see something happen, use this. This can reverse trend of, of being on top of this very problematic uh, epidemic.
3: Well, no doubt. Uh, Revere Fire was the first to carry Narcan on, on their apparatus. They, they really led the way. And that was back when uh, the drug was not widely used. It was it was inexpensive. And, you know, the fact is they're using it so much in Revere, in, in all of these municipalities, that they, yeah, what if they run out? You know, sometimes they hit people two, three times in one ambulance trip or on scene um, before they revive or if they don't revive. And, you know, what if, okay, we've had 10 overdoses this weekend and that happens. We only got 10 doses for the weekend. The 11th person, sorry. Maybe they have to call in reinforcements. Mm. But, yeah, that could happen. I mean, because the budgets are, aren't limitless. And let's add another thing, and that is that the public safety unions require um, mm. money, to uh, administer it, so it's a change in work conditions, so the municipality has to pay added money in the contract every year, which of course goes up, you know, just so that they will carry it. So yeah, it could be catastrophic.
2: Yeah. So Sue, so in this piece with the, by Shira Schoenberg, she points out that uh, Senator Eric Lesser was the one who had supported the subsidy bill to begin with, and he's quite distressed that, you know, he's going to have to ramp up again. I don't have a sense that they had. And I guess, given what Seth just said, how you would plan to know how much you would need. Do you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. you, right. if you at least were in the ballpark of understanding how much money it's going to take, it wouldn't be such a gap, I guess.
4: Yeah, I, huh. I, I think we need to reframe the conversation yeah. as this is a medicine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, this this is a medicine, right? And, again, we're in that crazy world of the United States where we're wondering how we can afford to purchase this medicine from this pharmaceutical company who told us we need it. I agree we need Mm -hmm. it. But totally, you know, the CVS in front of uh, my place in Jamaica Plain, the trash can has an ad for it, right? So they're now – advertising directly to consumers that we should all just have it. I don't disagree that we should or we shouldn't, but it's now built a marketplace for this medicine that we actually need. So I think the conversation needs to be reframed. We're not talking about whether or not flu shots, you know, what's the budget on flu shots or what's the budget on oxygen tanks in our first responders or other things that we need when we have a first responder. We have an opioid crisis that we need to address we have a budget crisis related to this medicine that we're using to keep people alive and i think that we just need to reframe
2: it that way and stop thinking of it as this separate thing so do any of you think that it won't that some kind of additional funding won't be coming forward
1: I mean, this is something that the state has made pretty clear is a priority. And specifically, Governor Charlie Baker, one of his major, major, major issues that he is out front on both in state and nationally is the opioid epidemic. If someone is going to help try and find additional funding sources for, you know, medicine like this, like Sue talked about it's probably going to be Governor Baker and his team. Another thing, too, just to touch on what Sue was talking about, one of the things that the Eric Lesser bill also looks at, because he he also introduced another piece of legislation that would expand the availability of the subsidized Narcan to other organizations. They also want to look at, other types of drugs that aren't necessarily, you know, specifically prescription Narcan, you know, mm-hmm. something kind of generic or mm-hmm. outside of that, because that that would be a really Does effective that exist? way to. I wasn't um, aware that existed. There's different options. I'm not super well versed mm-hmm. in that universe necessarily. But, you know, if cities and towns are attempting to find ways to fit this into their budget, mm. having a name brand versus off brand or, you know, some other option would be potentially a way to do that. OK,
2: well, let's move on. Seth, you noted that Commissioner Evans is talking about drones again. Yes. <clears throat> uh, this is something that came up actually last year, and I want mm-hmm. to just run a clip of Commissioner Evans talking about it in October of last year because mm-hmm. it was discovered that there had been a purchase of drones, yes. and everybody sort of lost their minds like, what is happening? You didn't tell <laughs> us about it. So here's uh, Commissioner Bill Evans. A lot of times if we have a shooting on the
3: street, no matter what community it is, it takes us over three hours to get our crime scene there, to take the photos, to take the measurements, to get the body off the street. Having the ability to fly a drone will get all those dimensions, get the photos, and we can clear that scene and get the body off the street a lot quicker. So it will make us a more efficient and effective department. I know the ACLU beats us up on any technology we get, but when, when they mentioned the body cameras, I remember people saying, oh, the police got to get with the times with technology. Well, we're trying to get with the time in the technology And we have every intention, before we roll out the drones, to talk to the public, we have a policy, work with our social justice task force, to exactly say what the drones are going to be used for and what what they're not going to be used
2: for. so that was from our show, Boston Public Radio, in which the commissioner makes regular appearances, and he was explaining that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made clear that no, we have not used them; We're, yeah. they're just in a box. So Seth.
3: Yeah, well, he he made um, mention of this last month during the body camera hearing, um, and he says they're ready to go, they're ready to use them. But that was sort of took a l- some of the counselors off guard, I think, because like in that clip, uh, there haven't been hasn't been any discussion since then, and you know, I mean, you begin to wonder how will they use them. I mean, he, he often talks about the crime scene and that's, you know, that's pretty legitimate because there's a lot of concerns at, at a shooting, especially a fatal one where the body can just lay there and they can't move it because, you know, the medical examiner might not get there. And if you could do a, a drone and you could, you know, map the scene out and, you know, you could kind of like hurry that process up. But then there's also the thing is, well, what if they have a, uh, a search warrant for a particular apartment, and they fly the drone up, and they're looking in your window? But whoops, they got the wrong floor, <laughs> and they catch you. No, he you swears know. that's not going
2: to happen. He says he's not trying to look in. Uh, I know in, in they your say window.
3: that, but uh. but what a, what about a few years <laughs> yeah. down the line? That's right. what everybody worries yeah. about, and every, and he always says it, and he is he's right. Everybody gets worried about new technology, mm-hmm. and how is it going to be used? And and we've seen people in the private sector for years, or just. In the general public misusing drones, and will the police do it too? So I don't know. He says they're ready to use it, and some of the counselors say, well, let's talk about it first. You know, the council president says she wants more technology, and I think the police are are starting to get that go there, and they mentioned that most of the officers don't have smartphones with Mm. them that are department-issued. I always see them talking on smartphones, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and I don't blame them, but um, mm-hmm. but I guess those are their phones. Yeah. yeah, So it surprises me that they wouldn't. Many of us have company-issued cell phones, and police should, too.
2: Well, we'll see about that. Sue, um, can you anticipate some upcoming conversations, public conversations, about drone use? Yeah, I
4: mean, I, I think the drone thing is a done deal at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a question of when, not if. And I think... There does need to be public discussion about it because there is the very utilitarian use of it at crime scenes and other things. And I totally trust Commissioner Billy Evans, but he's not going to be the commissioner forever and Mayor Walsh isn't going to be the mayor forever. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, we're in a a good spot to try and uh, hammer out some best practices, not only just for here, but, you know, we're seeing – Uh, with the body camera issue for police all across the nation, there's really no best practices guide for it. When do you shut the audio off? When do you leave the audio on? So maybe we have an opportunity
2: here to actually hammer out some great rules and regulations that the rest of the country can use. Though I would say if you're on a crime scene, never shut the audio or the video off on a body cam. That's just Mm -hmm. what seemed to me to be. And we've seen some of that happening in inopportune times. Lauren, did you have a comment about this?
1: Yeah, I just thought it was interesting the extent to which Bill Evans kind of Stuck it to the ACLU a little bit in his comments saying, you know, oh, there's concern about surveillance with body cameras, but, you know, this is a new technology and we're just trying to adopt new technology. I think if the department, you know, is really sincere about moving forward and and being technologically progressive, you know, you can't necessarily just cherry pick. And, you know, there needs to be kind of an open... Look at an assessment of, of these different types of methods of technology. And yeah, I absolutely believe the best practices, you know, letting Boston be the first in the nation and develop, you know, these guidelines is a really solid opportunity for BPD.
2: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Lauren Dazinski of Politico, Sue O'Connell of NECN and Bay Windows, and the South End News, and Seth Daniel of the Independent News Group. We're discussing this week's local news stories you may have missed. Something, Lauren, that I wanted to bring up because you pointed out that we should just take another look at this more deeply, actually, our own David Bernstein here, who's a WGBH contributor, has been looking at the candidates for Suffolk County DA. And many of them are, quote-unquote, reform candidates. In fact, most of them, except for one, Greg Henning, who is not. I don't know if you could call him the conservative candidate or not. Mm-hmm. That's not a label that he necessarily puts. He's, he's more conservative. But he just notes the irony that with most of the candidates running on a kind of reform platform, it may well be that in the end you end up with the guy who is actually leaning more conservatively.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because the district attorney's office is an opportunity to kind of provide leadership in criminal justice reform in a unique way. And the Suffolk County's DA seat specifically, which oversees Boston, Chelsea, you know, the fairly progressive swath and city of eastern Massachusetts, that seat itself has not had an open race, an open contested election since 1869, <laughs> which is so remarkable. So first off, there's this historic precedent of a race like this and an opportunity to vet these issues, vet these progressive justice and reform issues. At a time,
2: I should interrupt, when they have just passed a justice reform, criminal justice reform bill. Correct, right? correct. Okay. And,
1: and as mm-hmm. of Friday, mm-hmm. it's awaiting the governor's mm-hmm. signature. We're hearing that there could potentially be some movement on it. Perhaps there will be updates as of airtime. But mm-hmm. right now, it looks like it will probably be signed into law. But this opportunity to kind of have a conversation about what it means to be a top district attorney really is unprecedented so this is kind of going back to the overall discussion that is occurring basically this guy greg henning he is opposed to this criminal justice reform bill he said that he would not support it and then kind of walked back those comments last week but that's really one of the key breakdowns between he and the rest of the field which is exposing some rifts, if you will yeah
2: um seth i would also note as uh david did He's the only white guy in the in the lineup that True. everybody else is a person of color. They all have credentials to be in there, so there's nobody. Um, mm-hmm. Various law backgrounds, prosecutorial backgrounds, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. That's everybody. But that is an interesting point. Yeah. Um, and I myself did a commentary for a WGBH Morning Edition about the movement in general across the country – Aimed at local DAs because the connection between local DAs has often been, more often than not, that they back the police no matter what. Now there should be a close connection. Of course, they have to work together, but in terms of prosecuting police with bad behavior, the track record is that that doesn't happen.
3: Mm-hmm. So, well, mm-hmm. uh, in in Boston, Revere, Chelsea, Winthrop, you know, that's the district. It's such a different district, and um, you have much different issues. In Boston, that you would ha- then you would have in Winthrop, right? You know, I mean, there's not going to be a whole lot of police misconduct cases that you have to deal with out there. Presumably, or, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> actually, I yeah. should rephrase that. Yeah. There. there have been a few things, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you know, you know it's it's a different kind of crime there. I mean, if you go into Boston, you can draw a little rectangle right right around where most of the major serious crimes are. Say you go to Charlestown on the other side of downtown. There hasn't been a murder there, I think, in two years but you go into that little box where I personally live and, and it's, it's rampant, you know, most of the crime happens in a small area. Most of the police uh, involved shootings happen in that area. So, um, one thing is that several of these candidates are from that area. So Evandro Carvalho, mm-hmm. right? He lives right uh, in the Bowden street area. Dorchester. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do- yeah. Dorchester Bowdoin street. And, um, uh, if I, I don't, I'm not sure where Ms. McAuliffe lives, but I know she was very involved in mm-hmm. Chelsea in, 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 in some of the more high crime areas. Ms. Rollins, right, and she lives in Roxbury. So that's the interesting part is that where is that going to come from? And I'd like to hear what the neighbors are going to say in those areas because mm-hmm. um, that's where the heart of the matter lies. And that's where, that's where the issues have been going towards. Representative Carvalho has, has made numerous public statements, some of the few things he has said in public statements are about these cases. Like with the body cameras, there was a police right. officer caught on camera, uh, I guess harassing um, some teenagers and, and stuff. So, you know, that's, that's interesting.
4: Sue, so what do you say? Well, I mean, I think that aside from the race itself and the issues, I keep getting this longing for the big old party boss to come in mm. and sit people down and say, okay, all of you together are not going to be able to beat this guy because you're all getting the same voters. So Mm -hmm. who can we give a job to and (laughs) who can stay in the race? I think it's the same with the governor's race on the Democratic side. You know, you've, you've got candidates that are very much alike, who are running against—one uh, Will one of them will be running against Charlie Baker, but how do they get there? So I love seeing people run for office. I wish every single primary, every single person incumbent had a challenger, but I think at some point you got to be smart. If you want to forward criminal reform, you can't have every uh, person in the race be for criminal reform against someone who may or may not be for criminal reform. So,
2: so David Bernstein's uh, theory may be correct. I think the best thing about this— that having an active race since mm-hmm. decades ago, is that people will focus on the role of the DA. Right. And, and the I'm ACLU sure. is involved in exactly you know doing right.
4: this education program right. about what district attorneys do and why they are important to you and why, this if they're
2: elected, then you should know who you're electing and why you're electing them. That's correct. There are about a thousand DAs up for office across the mm-hmm. country. So our race is a part of That whole cohort, and it'll be interesting to see if out of this comes more attention to the role of the DA and more interaction from community about, you know, what they want to see in a person that that fulfills that role. So moving on, the Boston City Council wants more trees, Sue. (laughs) Yes. Um, And, you know, at first I thought, okay, really? That's the big issue? But, you know, when you think about the fact that there's so much construction going on, and they're ripping up all the trees.
4: Yeah. I you know in my I, neighborhood,
2: I'm not even in Boston and Cambridge. We lost a lot of trees. Right. Yeah. So,
4: and it's interesting. It's not mm-hmm. just the ripping up the trees, mm-hmm. but it's the planting the trees. Yeah. You know, I was in the Seaport District yesterday uh, having some lunch. And every time I'm in the Seaport District right now, I am just gobsmacked. I can't believe that this is where I would go with my parents when I was little. And we'd try and find Jimmy's Harborside, you know, and go mm-hmm. down an alley. And now it's this huge mecca, this metropolis, and there's no trees the trees are important for any number of reasons besides just how they look, but also this is a tree city. I mean, you know, we're, we're an area that has been proud of our greenery. So Ayanna Presley, who's the city council, she's an at-large person, she's also running for Congress, has put forward an idea, let's examine how we can get more trees planted, where they can get planted. You, you also have the issue of we don't want to end up like Houston. You know, we don't mm, want to end up so yeah. developed that we have no soil, no trees to absorb the water which is coming in some way. Right. It's and particularly
2: an, down at the seaport. Yep. Yeah, so by it's the a way. very,
4: very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a very important, uh, it's not just about you know, greenery, but it's also
2: about, I think, doing the right thing for our, our climate. Well, also in Houston, not having any trees doesn't help them with. Controlling cool, heat, right? Yeah, and, uh, heat and right. cool because yeah. it's so hot there and it just is reflected off of those sidewalks. What do you think about the tree thing, Lauren?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Anecdotally, my neighborhood in Dorchester, there was a spot along, what was it called? Gallivan Boulevard, mm-hmm. and the city had planted trees. I can't remember if it was the city or the state. It might have been one of those like cross jurisdiction issues between DCR, yeah. which is the state, uh, and the city of Boston trees had been planted along the roadway but they had not been maintained properly and so neighbors through the Civic Association were actually calling on the trees to be removed because they were dead and they Mm. were just eyesores so there is a little bit of, you know, you can't just Plant trees with Right, and in the city, if you the plant place. them, if the city plants the trees in the city,
4: they're not going to water them. That's no. the other part. Well, we well, have yeah. who water them. No, your the neighbors are supposed to water them. This when we had the I drought. Had the drought last mm-hmm. year or the year before, yeah. the call went out that you know we've planted a bunch of trees in my neighborhood in uh, Roxbury on Marcella Street. There are a bunch of trees planted. But they weren't being watered because they're not scheduled to be watered. So wow. you have to go out and water them yeah, as well. Yeah, so, yeah.
2: So Does everybody know that? Am I the only person did no, that didn't <laughs> know No, there's an
3: ongoing joke in, in most Uh-oh. of the South End neighborhoods that yeah. the city's coming in to plant trees so we can watch them die then for the next year. <laughs> right.
4: Oh, my God. They do. Oh, right. I mean, they plant right. trees,
3: they die. And then when, when they do live, the city never Then we have big hearings about them. how
2: do we move the trees and from are, the South End after. There yeah. trees with, like, the tree branches that
3: grow down into the sidewalk. Yes, I've seen that. But I didn't
2: realize we were supposed to be watering them. I guess that never occurred to me. Yeah. Okay, yep. just let somebody else do it. That's just the wrong <laughs> attitude.
1: Let's, let's add a public education campaign. Yes, no, so water <laughs> your tree. Yeah. And that's
2: true. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with our local news roundtable folks, Lauren Dzinski, Sue O'Connell, and Seth Daniel, and we're talking about the stories you may have missed from this week's local news. I like some good news, Seth. So mm-hmm. it is good news that there is a new commuter bus coming out yeah. of um, – Silver Line Service yes. from Chelsea. This yes. is great. Talk about it what is impact it's going to make.
3: Um, it's going to be a huge impact. Mm. And, and everybody you talk to loves to use the language game changer. right? <laughs> yeah. and it is. But in yeah. this case, this is a game changer um, for all the communities around. And what it is is it's bus rapid transit, um, which are like the Silver Line buses you've seen, the longer buses. And they're going to be running not on the street but on their own dedicated area um, along what used to be a rail um, line in, in Chelsea and there'll be four stations there it opens April 21st and I mean it, what it does is it connects Chelsea and that area there which is so, a long time way underserved by the T. you know like given, a desert yeah, yeah like, uh, given yeah. the number of people that use the T in Chelsea it's like unbelievable how little there is same thing with Everett but this will connect them to South Station because they'll be able to go all the way through Chelsea to the airport and then through the Ted Williams tunnel to the mm. seaport and then South Station which is, you know, you always you remember yeah. the can't get there from here. That's, right. That yeah. was a can't get there from here. Right. <laughs> anyway, so like I said, it opens on the 21st. It's a 10 to 15-minute ride from what is Market Basket in Chelsea, which is a – everyone knows who that is maybe. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, It's iconic. Yes, that's a, that's a landmark. So you could get from there to South Station in about 15 minutes, one seat. And yeah. um, But it really, I mean, it opens up a lot of jobs for people in Chelsea, right, because you – you were not able to get to the seaport. I mean, there's so many restaurants there. There's so many opportunities there. Um, it also opens up Chelsea to people, you know, in the seaport area, or, you know, it's an, another place you could live, um, easy to get to. The FBI building, it's crucial for that mm. because many of the FBI people apparently live on the South Shore, and they like to, once they got to the South Station, they were they had nowhere else to, go, to go to get to mm. Chelsea. So, So this is crucial for that. But it has a bigger component because the secretary... Recently shared, Secretary Pollock, mm-hmm. State Secretary of Transportation. Stephanie Pollock. Mm-hmm. You got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's shared that in their upcoming state report on transportation in the future called Focus 40, they're going to suggest that they continue this line through Everett and into Charlestown's Sullivan Square and then on to Kendall which will make a new ring wow. in the transportation system.
2: Well, what was the chances of that happening? We can all talk about what we'd like. but No, I the think
3: they're really good.
2: Yeah, um, I think the silver line
4: yeah. aspect, because compared to the other ideas and projects and things we need, it's it's a lower dollar figure mm-hmm. than it is. You're not really needing to build things. Yeah, it's just mm-hmm. bus routes, it, it's just, really. It's really just a, a bus.
3: Mm-hmm. And a dedicated lane. Yep. I mean, um, Everett has been a leader. They've taken on being leaders in Transportation planning for this um, with the state. And they've already dedicated, they already have a dedicated bus lane. They're ready for it to come if it does. And a lot of the other areas are going to be paid for with private dollars, like uh, perhaps the casino. Which Commitment. we're
4: now just calling the casino.
3: Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> the. it lost its the. name. Yes, the. it did definitely. The casino. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they have that. The yeah. MBTA has commitments at Sullivan Square along with a number of other
2: people. Um, it's very doable. Yeah. I always think when mm. I hear about a new expansion of the bus system, which should have been there a long time ago, and, mm-hmm. you know, these possibilities, now oh, will this impress Amazon? <laughs> 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 because, you know, whenever they come, if they come, they're going to build their own thing, but it gives them a sense of where yeah. the, where to go and how to connect all the places mm-hmm. that the potential where their people may want to live.
1: Yeah, listen, know? if if the logistical question of getting... Hundreds, if not thousands, more people to the Seaport District. If for anyone who has ever ridden on the Red Line during <laughs> during uh, rush hour, like I have. you, you don't mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Like it's it's almost impossible to see how they do that. And so for the T to make it easier for people in other areas to get to these spaces and to get out of these Mm -hmm. spaces critically is really significant and you know whether it's Amazon or just quality of life for the people who are already living here (laughs) cough cough Um, Uh, right. (laughs) I think it's something that kind of behooves the transit agency to do and to improve our quality of life because let's be honest these commutes aren't getting any easier even with the existing workforce to attempt to add in the x factor of more people in a high profile industry who knows what that looks like but bring on the buses man yeah Mm -hmm. well i mean take
3: it like this if you think about east cambridge and all the building that they're doing over there if this expansion went forward you could walk over to sullivan square and get to south station
1: wow Pretty quick. (laughs)
3: What a dream. That would be. Yeah. (laughs) It is a dream at at the moment,
2: though, right? (laughs) All right. Well, speaking of uh, motor vehicles, (laughs) people who register for Boston parking permits will be automatically registered to vote under a proposal. Now, this is something that's happening in the rest of the world, really. But, okay. (laughs) This is Counselor Josh Sacom, who we should mention is running for a position which would allow him to more focused Secretary on, of State yeah.
4: indeed yes he hmm. he uh, brought this into the Boston City Council and now we'll go to Mayor Walsh to see if Mayor Walsh will allow for it I mean I personally think that the more access people have and more connections and opportunities you have to register the vote the better it is and I don't know why we're just not handing out With every single your library card, as they're suggesting, I know Mm -hmm. uh, in the public schools there's always a push to get the kids. uh, You know they can register early before they're 18. I think this is uh, a no-brainer. I wish. You know, Josh Jacob didn't have to run for Secretary of State before he introduced it because <laughs> anyone yeah. could have introduced this to, to pick it up. But I think more registration is key and more ease in registration. Well, more
2: opt-in, you know, just right. put you, automatically put you in and, right. then, and then, then you have you to, have to think about it if you're going to opt out. Right. And, you know, no, most people don't do that. They just... It, yeah. The number of stories that we've all done and reported on of people who, you know, days before they're trying to vote say, What do you, what Wait, I missed I'm not the registered t- what? right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I know. like, like
4: I mean, Ivanka Trump, exactly, for
2: example, exactly, <laughs> who was not registered in the primary and, correctly. And actually, uh, the deceased uh, Erica Garner, yes, she wanted to, that was the daughter of uh, uh, Mr. Garner, who was choked to death by the police in New York. But she, when she discovered that. She had missed the deadline in New York to register to vote. Listen, the this world is, is getting so yeah. complicated.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, it, and I sound like my mother now saying this, but, you know, every single thing needs passwords and, yeah. and, and numbers and just sign me up. Yeah, exactly. sign me up, and I'll I'll, with I'll the cancel with the exception
2: it. of Facebook. You know, right. let me know. Yeah. I need some conversation yeah. there, Mark, before you do yeah, that. Before you do just things to be to clear, be. I don't want Mark to hear this and get confused and say, "Well, why am I testifying?" <laughs> <laughs> all right, Lauren, this is a really interesting story about UFOs. It's out of this world. It's out of this world, and it's a fight about it. I mean, first of all, where have I been? Who knew? I did not know that this. Monument existed. Yeah. And it is in Sheffield. Yes. And it's been comfortably in a place. I guess, well, it's not been comfortable. They've moved it around a while. But anyway, <laughs> this is from 1969. Forty people swear up and down they saw a UFO and this is a memorial to the space and what they saw. And yes. now but they want to move it from where it happened
1: yes yeah so th- so there's been some controversy around the sighting of this memorial that memorializes this <laughs> incident in 1969 in which there was a close encounter it is literally a quote on this engraved memorial that was given by Governor Charlie Baker like really? this is this is yes wow. this is a this is a real real thing that has been recognized by the state <laughs> it yeah. is and I don't wow. I don't mean it to mean this I don't, I'm not trying to make a joke out of it but the quote on the plaque is is, it's memorializing our nation's first off world UFO incident. Okay. On, end quote. That is like very, very real in terms of what it is. There's 40 people in the town of Sheffield who. Swear that they experienced this incident. You can go and read about it. They talk about a glowing light and out-of-body experience, and this monument commemorates that. The city is moving it around a little bit. There's some controversy around the fact that you know where well, it's sited. So it,
2: the farmer, I mean, it's on the farmer's land, or so he thought, and now they're saying, well, now it's a town right-of-way and has to be, or the, and the owner has to move it, even though it's on his land. Yeah, it's very bizarre. Yeah, it's one of yeah. those
1: weird local property issues so it's hard to tell if it's being moved because it's controversial because it's a ufo monument or if this is just this thing that's kind of caught up in bureaucratic red tape Mm -hmm. and isn't in the right spot where it needs to be nonetheless it's a fairly high profile item landmark if you will
2: I never heard of it. Uh, had you? Did you know about it, Seth?
3: I have heard of it, okay. and and I I would assume that the town of Sheffield um, no longer wants to be the UFO place. <laughs> maybe oh, maybe oh, they're I looking. See. I'm, I'm okay. reading between the lines. I know okay. nothing inside, but okay. it seems like maybe they're looking for a rebrand. What year was the sighting?
1: What year? 1969. 1969. Yeah, I, mean, I think there
4: have been previous UFO sightings uh, well, around, uh, around, the, around the nation. Did you
2: read the plaque? I did. did you I did. To what I just, I'm
4: just, there's <laughs> a plaque too <soon laughs> that the governor. Gave <laughs> right.
3: exactly. Okay. I, I, I imagine people flock there. I, I mean, I, I, I go saw go. it on TV. There's been numerous stories about it and dramas. You know, the TV dramas uh, about it. Um, wow. I need so, a podcast yeah. for this.
2: This is yeah. 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 Well, yeah. also, you know what? It, it, when you get those forty people, some of whom have moved out of town, who insist this is not a joke. We we all mm-hmm. saw it together. And they continue to say they saw it. I mean, you mm-hmm. gotta pay I, yeah, attention to that.
4: No, nope, I believe them.
2: So, Sue, do you think it should be moved?
4: Well, I love these old towny, you know, cow path. And I don't mean this in an, yeah. an, an, in an salty way. Just the reality of where the boundary is and where it's what the egress is based on mm-hmm. the old laws and all this. So, I think they should just really get it where it's supposed to be and put it there and leave it there. And right. and. There was a, a lot of uh, colonial people spent, made a lot of money doing boundary uh, sightings. That was like a big job in those days, and I think we still need them. Like the rock wall. <laughs> yeah, Some the thing. person who the said, this is Some where thing. the boundary is. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, finally today, Seth, I love these stories that you have of the, the store that um, has been in the same space for a uh, 900 years. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and appears to be continuing to do so.
3: Yes. The Marlboro Market. Right. Um, in, in the Back Bay. Yes. It's, um I think we these were you know um, the the corner stores and I say corner but we know it's C O N N A Kana. right? Kona, yeah, right? Oh, <laughs> yes, with the correct spelling. So accent. that's that's what it that's, that's, right. that's what it Kona's is. And, right. yeah. and it has been around since the '30s. Um, these uh, the Malone family is, is sold it uh, to a new um, group of people and you know it's a, again a small business and I think you know we've lost a lot of these stores. We've because lost a lot of them. I mean, it was it it's a tradition throughout uh, the neighborhoods in, in Greater Boston. I mean, and much of them are turning into seven elevens now. So I mean, no knock on them, but it's not the Marlboro market. you know, like the lady who who ran it, her name is Deb Malone. She said, I remember when the back bay was sketchtastic." Right? <laughs> that's a good quote. So it wasn't always nice there, and it's, yeah. it's a very nice area now. She has a display of fake IDs that she's confiscated over the years from college oh, now students. Oh, that's
4: rich. <laughs> and you'd always find a gem in there. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that you don't get with the 7-Elevens is you're not going to go in and find, like, this imported Italian pasta that yeah. she just happened to buy because she liked it or a very, you know, ex- nice red wine that you're just not going to find somewhere. So yeah. that's mm-hmm. it's the finding the gems that makes it so special.
2: What I loved about your story was that um, it talked about the progression of various immigrants who've taken this yeah. over. So first Italian, then mm-hmm. Irish, and now it now, uh, appears to be um Yeah, some brothers from
3: it. Middle Eastern, I'm not sure which country, but yeah, um, yeah they've, they've taken it over again, a small business been transferred from one to the other to the other and it's probably going to be run much the same way with their own little touches but like sue said it's a place you could find anything you could uh, maybe go in and find a disco ball if you were in need of one <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you
2: never know. i'll keep that in mind <laughs> well we'll leave that there and i'm just very excited about something old that remains new yes <laughs> thank you all for joining me today Kelly. Lauren Dzinski is a reporter for Politico Massachusetts and the editor of Politico's Massachusetts Playbook. Sue O'Connell is the host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell and the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. And Seth Daniel is a senior reporter with the Independent News Group. Coming up, how has the web affected the art world? Local artists are in an exhibit at the Institute of Contemporary Art. They are illustrating the profound impact the Internet has had on art and artistic expression. Art and the Age of the Internet, 1989 to today, that's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Could a perfectly filtered selfie be today's artistic answer to the self portrait painted with oil on canvas? It may seem flipped to suggest the two are related or even comparable, but the rapid development of technology and the exponential growth of the internet has seeped into every aspect of our world, even how art is created distributed, and displayed. A new exhibit at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston called Art in the Age of the Internet, 1989 to Today, examines how the Internet has impacted art and artistic expression. Joining me in the studio, Ava Respini, the Barbara Lee Chief Curator at the ICA. Welcome. Hi. So glad to have you. And Mike Mandel, a Watertown-based artist whose work, Lockdown Archive, is on display as part of the exhibit. Lockdown Archive was created by Mike and his wife, Chantal Sakari, who is also an artist. Hello, Mike.
5: Hello, Kelly. Thank you. Well, this is just a
2: really interesting exhibit, Ava. It had to be fun for you to put it together. But let's start at the beginning. Why did you decide that this should be a theme at all? Well, it's something I've been thinking about for a while.
0: And the question that the exhibition asks is, how has the internet changed art? As we know, it's changed everything in our lives, how we date, how we shop, how we travel, how we understand the news, how we understand facts even. So of course, it's changed how artists see and how they produce. So this exhibition is an exploration of those questions, that big question. And The artists answer it each in their own way and
2: through their own lens and with a variety of mediums. Do you think that people come to the exhibit with kind of uh, their own take of what the Internet is and so therefore they're sort of looking for certain things to be in the exhibit to represent that. I think they do. The
0: internet touches all of us. We use it, you know, every day all the time, most of us at least. So I think people come with a preconceived notion of what they will see. But what I hope the exhibition does is pull apart those notions. You will see paintings, you'll see sculptures, you'll see art made in a variety of analog mediums. And the point is really that everything has been touched by the internet, not just digital technology, but
2: The age old uh, medium of painting has also been touched in one way or another. So you have different themes, and it's huge. And I want to remind people that this is 1989 to today. So you might um, speak a bit about why the beginning is at 1989. So the Internet has actually been
0: around since the 1960s,
2: but 89
0: is an important moment because the World Wide Web is invented in that year. Tim Berners-Lee, who was working at CERN at the time, made a proposal for a hyperlinked system that became what we understand the Internet to be today. And with the introduction of the World Wide Web came uh, user-friendly browsers, Netscape, Mosaic, for those of us old enough to understand and remember those, um, which then, of course, ushered in the era that we know now with social media and apps and smartphones. So we start in 89 because that is when the internet as we understand it now is invented. But it's also the year of major cultural shifts around the world, the year of the Berlin Wall, Tiananmen Square. It was also the year that the first satellite was launched into space that comprises our global positioning system, our GPS. So we could argue that this is the beginning of the globalized era where we can't imagine this moment without the internet. So both of those events in the world as well as the introduction of the World Wide Web really comprised the age of the internet, the moment that we're
2: living in now. So when you looked at that Time period, what were some of the common themes you thought needed to be represented in this exhibit?
0: Well, we came up with five themes that we saw a lot of artists dealing with in one way or another from their particular point of view. Themes about surveillance and threat to privacy, something that I think a lot of us are thinking about now, but artists have been thinking about this for some time. Ideas about how we perform online, uh, how our online personas affect our real-life personas. Ideas about circulation of images and information, and how images and information circulate today has affected how we think and how we understand ourselves. Questions around the body and what it means to be human in the digital world. These are all areas of uh, inquiry that are addressed in the exhibition.
2: That's my guest, Ava Raspini. She's the Barbara Lee Chief Curator at the ICA. So I'm moving over to you, Mike, um, Mm. because your piece is in one of the galleries that focuses on surveillance. And I should mention there are many interesting things going on in that gallery, including a creepy doll that follows you around and one big eye that follows you around, which Ava told me when I visited the gallery, it closes if no one's in the gallery. So that just the thought. Anyway, it's truly surveillance. But your piece has a particular resonance because you're local. uh, You've been in Watertown for some 20 years, and you made a piece of art about surveillance out of what was happening in your community. So describe what your piece is about.
5: Right. Well, again, Mm -hmm. let me uh, just apologize for the fact that my collaborator, uh, Chantal Zachary, couldn't be here today because uh, we definitely did this as a a joint effort. But. As far as surveillance goes, I think it was kind of surprising, actually, that Eva uh, chose this particular project to be included in that classification. And the more I thought about it, the more enjoyable I thought that this piece was recognized for that. Because if we well, go back well, to well, what why the did project you think it was
2: surprising, so let me let me just interrupt you and ask that question.
5: Well, I mean, <laughs> what the piece is? Let me just describe mm-hmm. what the piece mm-hmm. is. It's uh, it's the fact that we go back to the Boston Marathon bombing that happened in 2013. Surveillance was used to identify who the bombers were. About five days later, there was a, a manhunt for the two Tsarnaev brothers that uh, had landed in Watertown and had been found by a number of police. And there was a shootout and all hell broke loose. And we were locked down living in Watertown. We literally were locked in our house for 16 hours straight, unable to get out. And what we decided to do was, other than just look out our window and see all these uh, tactical police forces and SWAT teams and National Guardsmen marching down the street, we decided to, you know, what you do when you're home alone, uh, you can't do anything, so you turn on the television and you go to social media. And we immediately started seeing things that were uploaded to Facebook, uploaded to Instagram, to Reddit, to all kinds of different places on the web where people were taking pictures, of what was going on outside. And they were uploading these pictures to the web. And so we started collecting all of these things. So I guess what's interesting, just to double back, the surveillance that occurred to help the police figure out who these guys were and track them uh, was a surveillance we're used to, a corporate governmental surveillance. But what we did is actually recognize that All the residents, all of our neighbors, everyone in Watertown were now the surveillers. We were the ones who were conducting the surveillance. Everybody has a a camera phone. And whenever there was something going on outside, they were taking pictures. There's an incredible picture of someone standing at their window and looking down at a tank with a guy on top of the tank and his assault weapon is pointed straight at the photographer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was one of the most horrific pictures that I'd I'd ever seen. Living here in the United States, living in Watertown, it reminded me of uh, newsreel footage when I was a kid seeing the the Russians invade Budapest in 1956. That's what it looked like. So we in Watertown, unknowingly, communally, were gathering pictures and pictures that that, uh, we were all making of, of all of this event. And what we did with that is we created an archive, a lockdown archive. So all the photographs that we could collect over... Not even just the period of a few days, but a period of two years, because the web is an ongoing, a very transient platform. Pictures, news uh, articles appear, and then they disappear. So we kept collecting and collecting until we felt like we had done as much as we could. And I think we collected somewhere over 300 and some pictures that were part of the project.
2: Wow. That's my guest, Mike Mandel. He's a Watertown-based artist whose work, Lockdown Archive, as he's just described, really incorporates all of the images on the day of the lockdown when uh, police officers were looking for the Tsarnaev brother who had escaped, Zokar Zernaev. So you usually deal in public art, and I was just thinking to myself that this wasn't very public, actually. I mean, it was, but it wasn't because it was from people's own little individual space— And then I started thinking about the fact, yes, everybody could go online and see it. But few people were going to do what you did, which is to see how much stuff was out there. I think most people would go for one or two pictures, um, then go back to a news report. So unless they see your piece, I don't think most of us would have a sense of the vastness of the images. So can you talk about that? Because were you surprised about how many there were?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think when we uh, initially thought we'd start collecting, we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into. But I think that's why people need to come to the ICA. <laughs> they need to be able to look at the slideshow and the book that are both exhibited and see the the variety of things that are happening, to see the uh, people that are coming out of their house with their hands up because they might be considered to be uh, – uh, a suspect. A suspect, mm-hmm. right. Or people that, uh, one guy who was stripped naked because he came into the neighborhood during the shootout and uh, thought that he might be connected. And you see a picture of that or you see people, you know, where they're in their living room sitting on their sofa and there's all these tactical guys with their assault weapons that are walking through their kitchen and their their living room. <laughs> and And then you see pictures of of all the bullet holes, not only of the outside of the houses, but inside the houses. And it's an incredible situation that no one actually was killed from all the hundreds of bullets that entered people's homes in Watertown. So you see all the pictures that we collected that people uploaded of all the bullets. So I think what's there, what's really, it's a great historical archive that we've created for Watertown and for anyone who's interested in what happened in Watertown at that time. I don't think we realized, you know, how important it would mm-hmm. be and how what breadth it would have and that you'd have to actually come to this project to see it because as I said you can't really go on the web and mm-hmm. find all those things anymore they're they've kind of passed through
2: and nobody's putting it together except you we, you were we you were do. looking to do that I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Ava Raspini, curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, and Mike Mandel, artist and co-creator of Lockdown Archive on display at the ICA. And we're discussing a new exhibit at the ICA called Art in the Age of the Internet, 1989 to Today, which explores how the Internet has impacted art and artistic expression. So, Ava is outright a curator. Everything about the internet that has been done by artists, many of them are represented in the show, but there's many, there's much more stuff, so she had to figure out what goes in this exhibit because that makes sense. How did you determine, because did you use all 306? I mean, was that all that was there, or did you curate those photos in a way and what got put in and what got left out?
5: Well, I think as far as the slideshow goes, there's probably some curatorial uh, effort that went into that. I think the real question is that we are artists, Chantal and I are artists. We're not interested in being historians or just making a collection. So what we've done is a bit different than maybe someone who is an anthropologist might do because we've created these um, kind of arbitrary categories that the photographs sit within. One category might be the blue team, or one category might be wrong man, or one category might be hands up. We didn't really care about trying to be responsible in creating some kind of a historical timeline that it'd be more of a journalist's job to do. Mm -hmm. We were interested in trying to create an aesthetic piece that you could use and get some emotional psychological sensibility or create a feeling that one might get if you get this overwhelming amount of information that are created in these categories that we put them in that's really what our interest was so what's interesting about this is that i as a
2: journalist and other people historians if doing a piece about this would look at your piece for evidence, ways of figuring out the mood, seeing what people were doing. So it has history to it, whether you intended it to be that or not. It has anthropology, whether you intended it to be there or not. And actually, it has a bit of journalism, whether you intended it to be there well, or not. Can, it's just, I'm just interesting. I you know?
5: just kind of a <laughs> segue to 40 years ago and a project that another artist and I collaborated on. Larry Sultan and I did a piece called Evidence What we did in that situation is that we went to archives of corporate agencies, the places that were building the future, Bechtel, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Northrop Aircraft, Aero Neutronic Ford, all the places in California where we live that were building the new technologies for weaponry and for space exploration. And we looked through all these photographs and we chose images that were somewhat ambiguous that we could then recontextualize into a book and into an exhibition, but mostly into a book that have relationships between the facing images and relationships sequentially, so that when you get done looking at all these photographs, you feel much less faith and hope. You have a lot more sense of anxiety about the progress that's happening through the new technologies. You feel kind of worried and scared about all of that. And I think that just then to come back to this project, I think that's the same effect, the same emotional effect that we were looking to produce in our audience.
2: So the reason I brought up the historian take on it, because Ava, I'm Ava Raspini at the ICA, I'm thinking if I look at your piece, you know, first it's framed by a time period, but historically, what is the internet saying to us through these artists during this time period, do you think?
0: Well, you know, there's an incredible blurring of these lines and these boundaries and these disciplines, as you've just pointed out. So, for example, in that room about surveillance, there are works that speak to the threat to privacy that we know about, especially in a post-Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning world where we understand these kind of mass surveillance programs that have been undertaken by governmental agencies as well as private individuals. But we were also interested in complicating that, that the internet could also be a tool of resistance. And we saw this, for example, in the Arab Spring with citizen journalism and the incredible power that individuals now have with a phone and with an internet connection by posting things to social media. And so our hope with the exhibition is to really complicate some of these notions. And hopefully looking back, whether it's five years from now, 10 years from now, or 15 years from now, we'll see that this moment, the era that we're in, the age of the internet as I'm calling it, is an incredibly complicated and nuanced moment where this blurring of disciplines and these questions, there's no one answer, there's no one way of looking at just an issue of surveillance take as an example, there are many views into this. And I really believe that artists help us see ourselves more clearly as a society. And
2: I look to artists to kind of point the way forward. I was going to say, I think artists are sort of the canary in the mines. So when there are issues like surveillance being discussed in this way in an artistic framework, I mean, they're usually the first people to sort of note it in the artwork. And the rest of us are like, what are you talking about? And then you sort of get it later as it becomes clear. What I'm curious about is because... We think of technology, or many people do, as a sort of young person's game because now the Internet, as might have been known in 1989, doesn't look anything like what we're dealing with. Though you covered that in the exhibit. I'm curious to know about the response of generational groups as they've come to interact with this exhibit. How has it been?
0: The response has been phenomenal. Uh, We've seen our attendance projections have been surpassed, which has been really gratifying to see so many people in the galleries. But we've really seen a variety of people, different generations, a lot of young people because of the colleges in town. We were hoping to capture that generation of digital natives. But we've also seen people of different generations who are coming to look and to learn. And I will say that the show is not just about technology. There are paintings in the show that are made quite traditionally but that have been influenced by digital technology, digital mark making, so the look of painting now is different that we have digital technology available to us and so I think there is something in there for everyone to take away and even if you're a Luddite or even if you're someone who's you know not on your phone 24-7 or on social media, there's a lot to learn from how the internet has affected how we see ourselves as individuals, as a society and how we project ourselves back into the world. Ultimately, to me, that's what the show is about. And I will also say that the show and many artists in the exhibition have a pretty dark view on where technology is taking us today. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, You know, a lot of people, including yourself, have have commented on the sort of darkness in the show. And my answer to that is, you know, we live in divisive, dark times, and artists are reflecting
2: that divisive nature of our society today and where we're at. I mean, it's very interesting. It's just, you know, you just sort of get a chill being responsive to some of it. So, Mike, having done this project, I mean, I know you're working across many different mediums. Does this sort of change the way you as an artist go forth in your overall artistic expression? I mean, once you've done this, does this draw you back to it, to this form, to do other kinds of projects?
5: Oh, I don't know. I think that this is somewhat connected to something that I was involved in 40 years ago. So it seems that, for me, that the idea of the the photograph... Every person's a photographer now. Every person's Mm -hmm. carrying a phone around with them and recognizing how photography has changed. And I've always considered myself a photographer. And now that that's upended so that everyone's a photographer, it changes the way I think about making photographic art. But I don't know about this piece changing you know it's just it's it happened it was a, an event and you know, i think we were able to do something it's
2: so that's not medium specific in other words so the internet is you know for you it's a way to express but not maybe not one yeah, that's going to have a long-term in, influence on where you go forward i can go in a lot of different directions yeah. <laughs> i got it i got it what do you want people to take away ava and I know it's for us to come and experience it as we do as, as visitors um, and as people who appreciate art, and I get that. But there's thoughtfulness in the variety in this exhibit. So, you know, what would you certainly not want them to miss, I guess, is the way to put it. <laughs>
0: For me, the show and what we're hoping to do with the show is make the argument that the internet is not just a technology or a set of protocols. The internet is a social construct. And by that, I mean it's a set of social relationships. And that set of social relationships has completely transformed who we are as a society over the last 30 years. And so I hope that visitors will come to the show and understand this specific moment that we're in and understand that everyone, artists included, have been affected and changed by this set
2: of social relationships. How about you, Mike? What do you want your piece to be saying as a part of this exhibit?
5: Well, I mean, I think uh, we want the piece to uh, suggest that there is power in media. You know, we are not only able to uh, organize ourselves for the Arab Spring, although we don't live there, but people were able to do that. But in this case, we were able to participate together unknowingly in creating this incredible historical document of what happened that day that I think is important to the history of of this region.
2: Well, thank you very much, both of you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Ava Raspini is the Barbara Lee Chief Curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, and Mike Mandel is an artist based in Watertown and co-creator of Lockdown Archive. Art in the age of the Internet, 1989 to today, is on display at the ICA through May 20th. Details at ICABoston.org. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley. And like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swai is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.